Good morning. Welcome to today in the biblical economy today. Uh, this is our continuing series on the book of Hebrews, and we saw uh, last time how the writer opens this book with what we call a theological explosion. We have this amazing opening where he uh, gives us these seven declarations about who Christ is and what he has done. Uh, he opens up the book, as you remember by saying, you know, in the past, God led our forefathers, spoke to our forefathers through the prophets in many ways, many times. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. And then, boom, the explosion begins. Seven glorious declarations of the son. He is appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the universe. He is the radiance of God's glory the exact representation of his nature. He upholds all things by the word of his power. He has now made purification for our sins, and he is seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. It is a glorious beginning. It's what we call in theology uh, descending Christology. It means it is boomed down upon you in a glorious single proclamation. In that sense, Hebrews is to the epistles what the Gospel of John is to the, to the Gospels. Because as you remember, recall that John does the same thing in his Gospel. He opens up at the shoot and says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That is a, that is a theological explosion as well. That is a descending Christology. Um, the same chapter 1, you have Nathaniel saying, In chapter 1 of John's Gospel... Truly, you are the Son of God. In the epistle, I mean, in the Gospels, the synoptics, what you have there is what we call an ascending Christology, where you meet Jesus, and they meet him as a friend, and then eventually they realize he's their teacher, they become his followers, he's their rabbi. Halfway through the Gospel, they realize oh, you are the Messiah, and then ultimately, by the end of the Passion, they realize you are the Son of God. Now, the reason that's important is because the Bible is basically giving us two ways to talk about Jesus with the world. And we often forget this, that the world needs both ways, and you have to figure out what's the right way for the group God has put in front of you at any particular time. There are people who need, uh, and I've seen this a lot in India, where you need to just like kaboom Proclaim to them exactly what the Bible teaches, who God is in Jesus Christ and what he has done. That is a descending Christology. Bang. Other people need a much more gradual introduction to Jesus. They, they have got, they've had a bad experience with the church, perhaps. They have gone away. They have uh, gone in their life. They've gone through difficult times. They, they got a divorce. They're in a lot of pain. They meet you, and they first discover that you actually care about them. That's their entrance. You care about them. You show them, from their point of view, just care in practical ways. And then they realize that you are one of these strange people called Christian. And then they know, they know that you have this strange idea about Jesus. You actually sing songs to him. Oh, my goodness, you worship him. You know, and you gradually, they realize the full proclamation of Christ. Our daughter is in Tanzania, and they, they have a 28 stories they tell in the Alaguisa language, they gradually introduce people 
to the gospel because they have no sense of sin, no remote idea that they're guilty of anything. There's, the gospel means nothing to them if you just kind of boom it down upon them. They have to be brought along gradually. And so the, the gospel itself is teaching us about how to proclaim the gospel. And, and Hebrews is one of those places where you get the full proclamation right up front. And then Hebrews is actually designed according to a whole kind of series of seven um, ways in which Christ trumps or supersedes all of the great truths of the Old Testament. So if you have, for example, he is Jesus greater than the angels. He is greater and fulfills all the prophets. He is greater than Moses, that's where we are today, greater than Moses. And it goes on. He is greater than the law. He is greater than the high priest. He is the ultimate high priest. He is the great fulfillment of the sacrifice. He fulfills all the sacrifices and the the kingship as well of the tribe of Judah. So you actually have seven great Jewish themes of which Christ fulfills all of these that are proclaimed in the book of Hebrews. Well, today we are in chapter 3, which is about how Jesus is greater than Moses. And this is actually a very important, and why I chose it for today, uh, text for the season of Lent. There's some sermons that you need to preach at Lent. This is one of them. So take note. This is not really an Eastertide sermon, okay? <laughs> he begins, uh, you know, in some ways he begins very comfortably because he begins in the same proclamative mode. He starts out saying, you know what, our holy brothers and sisters who share in this heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus the apostle and high priest whom we confessed. Now, right there, let's don't go too far right there. Let's look at what he does there. He is giving us right here two more titles that Christ fulfills, uh, one of which especially will be developed more later, but the, the calling, the title of apostle, and secondly, the title of high priest. Now, these are two positions which Christ will and does fulfill in the proclamation of the gospel. This should be identified in your minds with, you know, Moses and Aaron. This is the prophetic ministry. This is the priestly ministry. You recall that when, uh, perhaps you may not recall the word used, but in the book of Exodus, when God calls Moses at the beginning, at the the burning bush, he actually says to Moses, Exodus 3.12, I am sending you to Pharaoh to call my people out of their Egyptian bondage. This is like the, this is the call to, to, uh, to Moses, right there at the burning bush. Now Moses, the word that's used there is the word apostle. I am, apostle is an appointed, commissioned messenger. I am apostling you. I am commissioning you. The word there, sending you, means to send. I am sending you to bring the people out of Egypt. So Christ here is being declared essentially as the ultimate sending one, the ultimate one sent. Another, by the way, another great theme in John's gospel. 41 times in John's gospel he develops this theme as well. So here is Jesus, the great sending one. He becomes the great fulfillment of the prophets who come and bring God's word. They're sent to proclaim God's word. So the prophets face the people, right? They proclaim God's word to the people. The priest, other hand, of course, face God, represent the people before God in intercessory advocacy, etc. So here's Christ, who's both prophet and priest. He is both apostle and intercessor. He is both, you know, 
the one who brings us to God and the one who proclaims God's word to us. Again, one of the great themes of this book. And this chapter is going to focus specifically on the mosaic side of the whole thing. And Christ has been faithful in his house as Moses was faithful in his house. And you know already how important Moses is to the Jewish kind of framework. You know, the, on the transfiguration, who showed up? Moses and? Okay, you're not asleep, right. Moses and Elijah show up. Uh, that says a lot, doesn't it? And this is like, this is like the law and the prophets show up, okay? This is, this is, the, this is your seminal figures. So for the Hebrews to declare to these J Jewish background believers, Jesus is greater than Moses, this is huge. This is huge. So he's proclaiming to them that, okay, let's look at the ways in which uh, crisis is superior. He does this later with the priesthood in chapter 7. And what he basically does is he, he brings what you also know is that the whole exodus motif, the whole coming out of Egypt through the, through the wilderness into the promised land, this is the great paradigm of the Christian faith. This is how Paul develops this as well in Corinthians. We are those who are brought out of Egypt. We are also brought through the, the wilderness wanderings into the promised land. But here, of course, Christ is leading an even greater exodus. Uh, Moses led people to a physical promised land. We are going to the new creation. Moses is leading people out of physical bondage. Christ leads us out of spiritual bondage. Uh, Moses is leading the uh, ethnic people, you know, the people of Israel. Christ leads men and women from every tribe, every language, every tongue. Praise the Lord for our international scholars here today. They represent thousands of people groups around the world that are coming and being part of this great, this great promise. So this is the amazing uh, confession of this chapter. Moses was faithful in God's house. Jesus is faithful over God's house. Moses was a servant in the house. Jesus, Lord, over the house. The, the, he says a builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Okay, Moses is part of the house. He's part of the people of God. Jesus is the one who is building the new people of God. I will build my church. I mean, this is actually double image here. Christ is the one who builds the world. He is actually the one through whom the physical world was created. But he's also the one who builds the people of God. He, I will build my church. All of this is embedded in this amazing, uh, amazing passage. Well, if it ended in verse 6, we could have the benediction and go home and be very happy. But he won't do that. He won't do that. He launches in verse 7, so, and he begins to quote Psalm 95. Now, Psalm 95 has a very troubled history in the church. Because Psalm 95, if you, if you could take a typical hymn book, I don't know if it's true, the one in front of you, but take a typical hymn book and you go in the back of the book, you know, if you're a pastor and you're, oh, am I going to have to have a call to worship this Sunday? What am I going to do? Or whatever. Nowadays, people don't have a call to worship. They show up, hey, man, give me a cup of coffee, you know. But if, traditionally, churches had calls to worship, coming into God's presence, into his holy presence. So the people would actually have, as we had today, a proper call to worship. And so Psalm 95 was, was often used. Let me just give you a couple of familiar lines. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. 
Let us shout aloud the rock of our salvation. Come before him with thanksgiving. Verse 6. Come, let us bow down and worship us. Kneel before the Lord our maker. Sound familiar? You've heard these praises all of your life. But it's in the latter part of Psalm 95 that it turns. But today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. As it did in Meribah. As you did that day at Messiah in the desert where your fathers tested and tried me though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray. They have not known my ways. I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Don't miss the fact that Hebrews is not just quoting something out of history. He's quoting a psalm. He's quoting their book of worship. So the people of God actually enshrined in their worship their own rebellion against God. We never do that. We never do that. We only emphasize all of the wonderful things that we do and the wonderful things that God does in our lives. We forget all of the pain and suffering and trials and tribulations, and we don't enshrine those. They did that. They lamented that because they were themselves, hear this, a means of grace to us. That's why the whole history of Israel is used as instruction for us to remind us and warn us for against falling away. So this text enters into a huge discussion in the book of Hebrews. If there ever was a book, this is ground zero, by the way, not just this chapter, but the whole book, on can you lose your salvation? Now you're listening. I mean, this is not, I mean, it's not like, this is not like, okay, if we can just explain away Hebrews 6 verse 4, we're okay. This is not that kind of problem. This is a big problem. This is, I mean, actually, actually, it's introduced in Hebrews 2. He begins to hint at it. You know, he says, in verse 2, he's, I mean, chapter 2, he says, um, you know, be careful attention that what you've heard, you do not drift away from it. He's already introduced in chapter 2, but here he really brings it up. It's in chapter 3, chapter 4. Chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 10, chapter 12. I think it's something we can't skirt around. And this has been one of the most dividing, defining issues of the church. Of what exactly is the state of our security before God? It's a really important pastoral question, isn't it? And the church has never, uh, I mean, one of the challenges with this, this, I call it maddening, is there's so many verses you can quote on either side of this issue. And the church has basically not agreed on this point, to say the the least. They've not agreed on this point. So, I mean, historically, this divides out into what we call monergism, synergism. In other words, do we emphasize what God does or do we emphasize our response to what God does? So there's a whole hundreds of verses that really lay out clearly, you know, God, he decrees, God elects, God regenerates, God justifies, God, you know, ultimately glorifies us. It's like God acts. And what, what would we do if God didn't act? I mean, we totally agree with that, by the way. God is God. He does things that we cannot do. The Ephesians 3.1 says, you know, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. That's one of the big challenges theologically, actually, because we're told all through Scripture, you're supposed to, you know, call, come, repent, believe, turn. How can you call, come, repent, believe, and turn if you're dead? Dead people can't do those things. 
That's the, that's the, that's the theological problem here. How, on the one hand, do we, we really talk responsibly about human action, human activity, human responsibility, and yet also in the kind of God's sovereignty and God's work in the world and in the church? This has been a great, great challenge. In the uh, Protestant tradition, as you know, this is generally talked about in terms of Reformed theology, Calvinism particularly, five-point Calvinism, you know, T-U-L-I-P, the last, you know, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, you won't hear this said at SS Chapel. Um, <laughs> the last two, I-P, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. Those are the two that really come to bear on this chapter. Is grace resistible? And how, what is the basis of our perseverance? That's really what this whole book of Hebrews is going to address those two points of the, if you want to call it tulip, tulip, by the way, is a 20th century invention, but is based on the 17th century work of the, of the Roman Catholic, of the uh, Calvinist. But in, the, in our world, we talk about Arminian and Reform. That's kind of the way we frame it. But this is a Roman Catholic tension as well. You should be well aware. The Roman Catholics, this is what they would call Molinism versus Thomism. They have the same division, the same debates. And by the way, uh, this is also a, a, a theme all through every single religious tradition. Uh, I mean, in Hindu, I love Hinduism because in this case, Hinduism talks about it in terms of everyone is either, every religious strand, and there's many Hindu, Hindu religious strands, they're either monkeys or cats. Now that is really a great image, and I want to share it because you might help, be helpful for you. Because in India, if you look at monkeys and cats, cats, as they do all over the world, cats carry their young with their mouth. They pick them up and literally, and the, and the, and the little kitten is just limp. Have you ever seen a, a mother kitten, mother cat carrying her kittens? Some of you have. They just, they just, they just literally, they're totally, totally, you know, they don't do anything. They're just limp. And the mother physically picks them and cares when they need to go and puts them down. That is basically Calvinism. <laughs> <laughs> Their version of Calvinism. God does it all, you know, and the, and the monkey, if you look at monkeys, monkeys, baby monkeys have to hold on to their mother. And so the mother takes them, but then they have to hold on to it while the mother takes them around. And so the monkey is showing active, the baby monkey, active involvement with the, with the mother monkey. So monkeys, cats. By the way, the Wesleyans, what were the monkeys? <laughs> Who would believe the Hindus could help us out today? <laughs> so what do we say to this? I, I, by the way, I never believe something just because Wesley said it. I think it's important to say, first of all, our commitment under what does the Word of God say, right? And I think we're way too critical often of reform, insights and Reformed theology around here. We want to be open and hear. And to me, the great Wesleyan insight, of, I mean, overall, big picture Wesley, is he is a free borrower. This, we live in what we have what's called you know, the great synthesis tradition, learning to borrow from every tradition. And Wesley actually went through all of this and came to what I believe is a great, insightful way we handle this. Because Wesley actually rejects both sides of this argument. He does beautifully. On the one hand, Wesley would never accept a view which simply says that we are passive in the process and God does it all. But nor would he set a process that leads us into despair about God's active engagement in our lives. And so 
the, the problem that comes is on the one side you have phrases like, it's another modern phrase, but it's used a lot today, once saved, always saved. Have you heard that, right? All heard this. Okay, that represents that view that, you know, God does it. He's elected you. You're saved. You'll never leave. You never lose it. Once saved, always saved. Okay, Wesley does not agree with that. And it's really hard to read Hebrews in light of that. But Wesley does also does not believe what you get on the other end, way on the spectrum, which says, if you fall, if you stumble, you cannot be restored. All right? So what Wesley does, he, he is just as strong as any Calvinist on the point that we cannot do anything to save ourselves. We are dead in our sins. But God proveniently brings grace in our lives. That's, 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 that's basically monergism. God does something we don't do. We have nothing to do with it. God acts, boom. He brings provenient grace in your life. But then, this moves us over to the synergistic side, we are called to respond to that. And we have a responsibility before God to respond to his grace. We would say to some of our view, or Wesleyan view at least, would be that grace is very powerful, but it is resistible. We do know, in fact, in our own lives, I know in my life at least, perhaps yours, I have at times resisted God's grace. And God's allowed me to go into my own brokenness rather than to embrace his wholeness in my life. But I'm so thankful to God that he keeps calling me, he keeps sowing into my life. And God has brought me back to renewal and refreshment in him. And two of Wesley's, I mean, he has many, many sermons on these points, but two of his best you should read are his one called Predestination Calmly Considered. <laughs> Some people have said it's not that calm, but <laughs> his Predestination Calmly Considered and his other one, beautiful one, called The Call to Backsliders. It's number 86 in his collection. Call to Backsliders. It's a great, great and you may not like the term backslider. Remember, you're used to hearing that term. But that term, somebody who has once been in Christ, following him, and has fallen away, can they be restored? Wesley says, yes, you can be restored. We'll look at chapter 6 later on and how he deals with that. But this is a really important point because sin's voice is strong. But don't ever forget as Luther said, one little word shall fail him. Don't ever forget that it doesn't matter how many no's you say to God, his great yes is always greater than that. And we can live in that great truth. I think the challenge in this passage is he gives us real warnings here we should take very seriously. He says to us, not to people who aren't really saved, people who actually you know, are outside the, the people of God. He's saying to us, do not harden your hearts. When sin comes upon you in that temptation, do not harden your hearts. Do not go astray. He says here, we have come to share in Christ, is verse 14, if we hold firmly to the end the confidence we had at first. That is actually the beautiful balance. Yes, there's perseverance. The perseverance is God's activity with those who persevere. We have a responsibility to persevere by God's grace in faith as we serve to follow him and love him. Now, in our modern world, uh, 
praise God for the Pentecostals who've brought this back to some degree for us, but in our kind of the Methodist Wesleyan world, we've, many of us, some of our traditions at least, have lost the importance of the Holy Spirit in working in us and, in us and through us. So for us, basically, I'm speaking to you pastorally here as your, you know, chief friend, <laughs> your fellow fellow traveler on the road here, I, I fear that so much of what we call discipleship is nothing more than sin management. All right, we understand the process of forgiveness, repentance, restoration, we get that, but we don't know about the victorious life. We've don't, we haven't had our lives transformed by the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Every Christian needs an infilling and empowering of the Holy Spirit. I don't care what you call it. You can call it baptism in the Holy Spirit, being filled with the Holy Spirit. You may call it the second blessing. I don't care what you call it. Just get it. <laughs> Just get it. If there ever was anything that was Wesleyan, it's that, that salvation is Trinitarian. It is not just what Christ does, all what the Holy Spirit does in you. We really need to re-embrace Trinitarian salvation. It's not just being justified, it's being sanctified, and that comes through the power and work of the Holy Spirit. And many of you are working, you're like slaving away for God. God does not want you to be his slave in that sense of the word at least. He's not, he wants you to be empowered and joyfully serve him because you've been empowered by the Holy Spirit. And that calls us to difficult, challenging places, but it also calls us to recognize the, our, the limitations of our own strength. And I, I just so appreciate Jessica's sermon yesterday. It's exactly this point that there's so much we cannot do but we bring what we have. We bring the five loaves, the two fishes. But then God does that work in our lives that we cannot do. We must must do this. Many of you won't imagine the fact that you could fall away from the faith. We have Asbury graduates who have fallen away from the faith. This is not somebody else's problem. This is our problem. We have people who have thrown twenty years of ministry away for fifteen minutes of sexual pleasure. Now, not other people, that's us. That's our graduates. We've had people who have fallen away because of financial mismanagement and going after money or whatever. I mean, this is something, this is not something that we should think, well, this won't happen to me. This happens to Christians all the time. But even the, the more dramatic thing is not so much those things, those calamitous things that crash upon your life and destroy your marriage or destroy your inner life, but also those situations where we, through slow erosion, we lose our first love. And I have a, I have a little prayer, a little list in front of my Bible, like daily prayers. I pray for myself. And one of my prayers is, Lord, may I never lose my first love for you. And not ever, as it says here, harden my heart with the deceitfulness of sin. This is what he calls us to. A good friend of mine, a pastor in Scotland, who loves the Lord, serves the Lord joyfully to this day, but he, his, his good, fat pastor, a friend of his, they were prayer, prayer partners, and he, his name is Richard Holloway. Richard Holloway was a tremendous voice for the gospel. And, and if, I don't know if you've seen his books, but he's written books that were just absolutely 
put your heart on fire. This man knew the gospel. It was like reading N.T. Wright. It was like, wow, his insights were amazing. And at one point, he, uh, he was being considered for the, for the episcopacy, to be a bishop. And so he said to his friend, he said, you know, I mean, he said this kind of like we would say it today. You know, he says, I have seen bishops like go off the rails. I don't want that to happen to me. And he said, would you plead, just as a friend, if I ever say anything or do anything like off the rails, would you come tell me? Because I don't want that to happen to me. So he said, sure, I will. So, you know, fast forward some years, he gets elected bishop. He becomes the bishop of the whole of Scotland, Scottish, Scottish Episcopal Church. And next thing you know, uh, he notices that this guy's saying some strange things and like occasionally coming out with things that are clearly unorthodox. And so he goes to see him. And my friend Kevin said to Bishop Holloway, said, uh, hey, you know, we had a talk a couple years ago that, you know, if you ever went off the rails, me to come tell you. And I'm just here to tell you, you went off the rails. <laughs> to which Bishop Holloway said, and I quote his exact words, has anyone ever told you how annoying you are? Today, Bishop Holloway, by his own account, you can Google it and you know, go to YouTube on it, he's an atheist, completely lost his faith. A bishop of the church you, is no one that is exempt from the wiles of the evil one, especially you and me who've been trained theologically, biblically to lead God's flock how many churches have we seen that where the pastor has been slayed and he or she has been brought down by the evil one and the whole flock is scattered? I mean, the, the, the multiplying effect if you lose your ministry, your faith, is enormous. This text calls us during Lent to remember that. But the other side of it, quickly, is the fact that there are people here who are on the other end of the spectrum. You are following God with all your heart. You love the Lord. But there's something in your past where you still have a, a, a tape plane of despair that God will never use you because of that. See, that's the beautiful thing that Wesley, what, what Wesley says in that sermon on backsliders. He said, we have to be delivered from two evils. One is the evil of presumption, where you presume upon God's grace. But the other evil of despair, where you despair that God would ever forgive you and help you move on to the next chapter. We are called to go from glory to glory, not disaster to disaster. And this is what God is calling us in this text. Paul says to us, watch your life and doctrine closely. So what we're going to do to close this service, I want you to prayerfully reflect in your own heart of how you might need God's touch in your life during Lent. We are going to open the altar of the church. We, uh, the, the chapel, we have space here for you to come forward if you would like, and God leads you to come forward and pray. And you may, be a, you may have all upon the spectrum. You may say, Lord, I need something that I've had despair about to be really put in your hands forever. Others, you say, you know, Lord, I've been presumptuous, and I'm living in sin, and I want to be delivered from it. Or I need the Holy Spirit in my life. This altar is open for you.